0: Certainly, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning and to uh, participate in this program. To uh, listen to what Dr. Heimberger had to say to us during this previous hour, and get get us all started and our minds stirred up. But I think uh, between sessions like this, we ought to at least stand for a moment. Uh, why don't you stand and uh, take a deep breath or two and do a little bouncing? There might do you some good Just stretch a bit. Uh, feel good here a bit. All right, now you may sit down if you care to. Stand up if you care to. That's all right, too. I once had a student who went around uh, the classroom going (laughs) like this, walking around, and he said, uh, you have to do that to keep awake. It wasn't only in my class. It was in everybody's class. But uh, if you're that type, you just go ahead. Now, for years, when I was a pastor... Before I went into teaching or counseling or any of the rest of it, I used to attend these mental health meetings that were put on for pastors by various uh, societies or hospitals or organizations at which psychiatrists and psychologists met with pastors from the community and talked to pastors. The pastors always listened. The psychiatrists always talked. It was never the other way around, and that uh, troubled me a little bit that the data flow was so one-sided. I therefore appreciate the opportunity, as a minister of the word, to come to a gathering of medical personnel and to speak to you, rather than merely to be on the other side of the fence. And I want to thank you for that opportunity and uh, try to take advantage of it while we're here, the little while that we have together. We were told very frequently by these uh, mental health people, they called themselves, that the pastor was a gatekeeper. That was the great word that kept coming out all the time. That is, he was one of those who first saw people with problems, and the statistics still indicate that's true in many instances and uh, therefore he was taught by these uh, personnel who came and spoke to us how to defer and refer. That was to be the particular task of the gatekeeper as he uh, looked at these people. His job was to send them to the psychiatrist or the psychologist if they had anything worse than a minor psychic stretch. Now, um, the problem was that as a pastor, over the years, as I began to get into the ministry, I tried to fulfill these duties that I was given by these people, except that it didn't work. <clears throat> Sending people off of a psychologist and psychiatrist meant that they came back later on, either as bad or worse, in almost every instance. So we weren't getting results, and uh, this became quite a problem. Now, I know you have a problem also, and I know that's your problem as a physician. I don't know that we have any psychiatrists or psychologists here, but uh, most of you are body people. You're not working with uh, problems about how to relate to grandmother or something of that nature. You're dealing with body problems fundamentally. And so you have uh, much the same problem that I had as a pastor when you realize that you have to send people off very frequently to someone to get help. Many physicians that I have as friends have spoken to me about this problem. I've read the literature, and the literature in some places says up to 50 percent, other literature 60 to 70 percent, of the persons that a physician sees really uh, have no organic problem or no organically based problem and really shouldn't be there, that their problems are psychosomatic or whatever you want to call it. And uh, uh, the difficulty is is that you've got to do something for those people. Now, many physicians, of course, give them some kind of a a pill or some kind of a prescription for something or other that might uh, make them happier and send them off that way. People wouldn't be happy if you didn't do something for them, we're told. And so this is one of the reasons for the terrible over-medication that's going on in our time. But uh, when you send people off to psychologists or psychiatrists uh, in this situation, again, you still have the problem, they come back either as bad or worse as before in many instances. Well, you might take the weed or cross approach up in Vermont and Maine, those fellows, it was problem-oriented medicine, but I've been through all that stuff, and it looks so complex and so complicated that I guess most people don't get very uh, heavily tied into that. And again, it's not biblically oriented, even though they're trying to look at the whole person and trying to do the job. It, it just doesn't quite do it for the average physician who has to handle these difficulties. Well, then you say, I'll try counseling myself. Some of you have tried counseling people. You're Christians. You know that their real problem is that they need to get certain things squared away with the Lord and with their family members, their boss or their job or their responsibilities in life or whatever it may be. And so you, you try doing counseling when you realize that this is what these people need. But then that creates a new problem. You have too little time to do the adequate job. It destroys your own family if you stay late night after night, uh, extending your time working with such people and taking extra time out. And uh, so you create new and worse problems than you are faced with to begin with. And you know that uh, if you really do do the job of counseling, whereas you might see a person for 10 or 15 minutes or even less in many instances, uh, I read in literature that 5 to 10 minutes is the average uh, office visit with with a physician. You, being Christians, probably spend a little more time with people. But let's say it's 15 minutes each person you spend, the average time you spend with the person... You can't do much counseling plus all the body work you're going to have to do in that period of time. So uh, here you are frustrated again. Uh, counseling takes time. Well, if you give them that kind of time, then you're going to have to charge them these exorbitant fees in order to keep your, your uh, salary level up to where it belongs because you'll see far, far less people. So here you are in this kind of dilemma again. What are you going to do? Well, you refer and you have... Uh, Problems. You know, if you've read uh, uh, medical world news, uh, that the, the difficulties with psychiatry and psychology are very evident. It first came out there, it came out other places later on, but uh, you know about the experiment for about, of about uh, ten years ago when one of these psychiatrists thought he would check out his fellows and their ability to diagnose problems. So, he sent 12 persons, and I hope the uh, next statement is accurate, as sane as you or I, into 12 of this nation's leading mental institutions. Now, when they entered those mental institutions, they uh, lied only about one thing. They said, uh, uh, I hallucinated. They didn't act in any strange way. They didn't tell any other lies. Any other questions they were asked, they tried to answer factually. And uh, (coughs) Uh, In these 12 instances, uh, how many times do you suspect that they were declared to have serious mental illnesses? Would you believe in half of those instances? Well, you'd be wrong. Would you believe in three-fourths of those instances? You'd still be wrong. In 12, out of 12 instances, these persons were labeled with... Either schizophrenia, in 11 cases, or in the 12th case, manic depressive was the label gummed on the file. Not much better. Now, these serious labels put on people's files, then follow them throughout the rest of their lives. Uh, and yet, in all cases, 12 out of 12 in this instance, the, uh, the diagnosis was absolutely false. A person can hallucinate for all sorts of reasons, as you're well aware. Hallucinogenic drugs, sleep loss, all kinds of things can lead to hallucinations. Just because a person's hallucinating doesn't say anything about etiology. A uh, person down here, if, if uh, Doug had a red nose, which he doesn't, uh, I would have no right to accuse him of boozing just because he has a red nose. It may be that he has a red nose because his wife punched him in it or because he's growing a pimple on it or because he fell asleep under the sun lamp. there are various causes or ideologies for red noses same effect various causes and same thing with hallucinations various causes of uh, the same effect and yet in all cases where these persons simply said I hallucinated they were taken into these mental institutions and labeled as having serious mental illness Oh, when that hit the fan, it splattered all over the psychiatric world, and was quite a stir. But when it settled down, the fellow who did this once again did it. Uh, once again, went to one of these institutions and said, "I'm going to do it to you again," but he didn't. And then he waited a while, and then he went to uh, that institution and he checked their intake records. And he saw that before this had occurred, and before he said, I was going to do it again, nobody, virtually nobody, was turned away as a malingerer, or fake, uh, for the benefit of any preachers in the area. But uh, if, uh, uh, after he had said this, uh, all sorts of people were being turned away as malingerers. So he got them going and coming. The... uh, the mess out there is bad. Zilberg, in his two-volume history of psychiatry, uh, concluded this. this. These were his actual words. He said, The field is in disarray just as it was at the beginning. Now, I agree with him that the field's in disarray, but I disagree that it's just as it was at the beginning. If you take the beginning somewhere around Freud and Charcot, uh, at the beginning of modern psychiatry, and psychology, you only had, uh, oh, maybe five, if you really wanted to expand it, seven, or if you really were uh, cutting the sausage pretty thin, 12 different viewpoints. But today in America, we're told that there are over 230 basically differing viewpoints of counseling, psychology, and psychotherapy of various sorts. 230 differing viewpoints. Just think about that for a moment. You can't even study them all in a lifetime adequately to make an evaluation of who's right, if any, or what pieces of which ones are right if you're going to eclectically make an amalgam of these various viewpoints. And they continue day by day and week by week and year by year to come upon the market like a new breakfast cereal does every time you go down to the, sh- to the store. Uh, always the new viewpoint saying, at last we found it, all the rest were wrong up until now, you finally got it. So all your study of Freud and Jung and all these other people is worthless because now it comes on the mark. Who knows who's right? You don't even have time to study Jung in a lifetime. Jung is a mystic. Jung is tough. Jung has the animus and the anima, he has the collective unconscious, he's got all these mystical archetypes that go back to to the uh, early days of man's history. Why, just to even begin to understand Jung's viewpoint, let alone evaluate it, is a tremendous task. And then there's Freudianism of all the types, the old Freudianism of Freud's early days, later Freud. Uh, then there's the business of Neo-Freudianism, which emphasizes the ego rather than the id. And uh, you've got it in all of its strange manifestations, such as Eric Byrne presented in I'm Okay, You're Okay, through his uh, uh, follower Harris and so forth. And that whole field of, of Freudianism and Neo-Freudianism and all the things that grow out of that. Then you've got the third force fellows who are more dominant today than the behaviorists or then... Freudians and uh, these other people who uh, have just filled our country with this idea of self-love and self-esteem and self-worth. And practically every book that comes off of the the, uh, press today, even by Christians, uh, purports to to see in the Bible this great teaching of self-worth and self-love and self-esteem that we must bolster in every human being. Uh, something we never saw and something we condemned for many centuries in the Christian church, but now we've been brainwashed into believing that this is true. Even our hymns are being changed so that we no longer sing hymns that say anything about worms. And uh, (coughs) the whole business just continues to change and change and change, and we go from one thing to the next. But there's nothing solid, no consensus. Now, uh, psychologists and psychiatrists who were the leading lights in our country first met together, the first time they could ever even get together, about three years ago in Phoenix. And when they got together, Time magazine reported that there was only one conclusion out of that meeting, that nobody agreed about anything. And that was exactly true. Uh, I was on a jury just recently, this last year as a matter of fact, And uh, we had a psychiatrist testify in the case that we were uh, following. And it was interesting when the uh, district attorney asked the psychiatrist, Richard Rapoport, who is a forensic psychiatrist from San Diego and does this thing regularly all the time for... uh, Let's see, what did he get? He told us, I think, she asked him, I think, to make it sound bad... He got something like 500 bucks for a period for five minutes, of jury case each time. Of course, you have to sit around a little while waiting for it to be brought in, but it's pretty good for an hour's work or so. And uh, he, uh, he was asked by the district attorney, assistant district attorney, do psychiatrists agree on anything? And under oath, he said, No. And that was exactly the honest answer that a man would have to give under those circumstances because either ignorance or arrogance alone could make anyone in this field today say this is what's right, this is what's correct. He'd either be ignorant of all the varieties of viewpoints and the lack of consensus or he'd be so arrogant as to say I know which one is right. I am sure that Freud is right. I am sure that Jung is right. I'm sure that Rogers is right. Or I am sure that this combination of particular individuals is correct. Uh, Pure arrogance. The only way in this confusion, uh, which Rogers himself said was a mess, the whole field is a mess, he said, uh, instead of in disarray, but it's the same idea, Uh, The only way anyone could testify that he has the answers and knows who's right is to either be ignorant of the situation or arrogantly assert that he has himself that answer. Well then, where is the answer to your problem? You see these people. You have to do something about them. You have to work with these people who are full of difficulties and problems and and do you... uh, send them off to the shrinks or don't you? That's the issue. Uh, Do you try to treat them yourself or don't you? Your time is too short. Uh, I want to tell you that there is an answer to your problem. It's coming along more and more all the time, this answer isn't as widespread as we'd like to see it be, but it is on its way, and in certain places it is in place. There is a new kind of person to whom you may refer people. Uh, Someone who doesn't play shrink, but someone who wants to work with you as physicians and who can be of great help to such people as the ones that we're talking about. He is a new breed of ecclesiastical cat that's prowling around in this country today. But first, on behalf of all concerned ministers, see matters this way, I want to do something here since I have an opportunity that I rarely have. And that is, I want to ask your forgiveness. I want to ask your forgiveness on the behalf of preachers of the gospel who ought to have been working with you and serving you over the years, but who have not. The dilemma in which you find yourself Having to deal with these people and not being able to send them off to psychiatrists and find answers is not of your making. It's not your fault. You're in a dilemma that the church has created for you, that preachers have brought about. It's not your fault, it's theirs. Now, it's understandable to some extent. Pastors used to do counseling. They used to write the books on melancholy, all of them were written at one time by pastors, not by any third category of psychotherapeutic personnel, but pastors wrote on melancholy, which is now called, of course, depression. But something happened back in history. Uh, What happened in the history of the church was this. There came the great liberal movement into American Christianity. And that liberal movement was so powerful and had such an impact upon the church that many things were lost in the shuffle, in the battle against liberalism where institutions were taken over, church buildings and denominations, as whole denominations were taken over by liberals, where uh, publishing houses and radio broadcasts were taken over by liberals, uh, the liberal the conservatives who were still holding on to the truth became so engaged in the battle with liberalism and they were so zealously trying to hang on by their fingernails during this onslaught that many things went by the wayside indeed an awful lot of went by the wayside what went by the wayside affects our homes and has brought on much of the chaos that we see in our community the whole of teaching of families, teaching of, of, uh, of responsibility of husbands to wives and wives to husbands, as well as parents to children and so on. All this kind of slid, and everything became a doctrinal issue, and everything that was important had to do with whether the Bible was the Word of God or not. Now, that was central, and that was basic, and we could never let go of that. But on the other hand, many important things because of the... the the uh, bitterness of that situation and the desperation of the circumstances in the early uh, 1900s and late 1800s, many things just simply disappeared. And one of the things was that counseling disappeared. Pastors no longer did biblical counseling. And just at the same time, the psychiatrist was coming to the fore. The psychologist was coming on the scene in some with some kind of a genuine impact saying that there's a third category in life not just the organic category and the spiritual category the moral category but a third non-organic non-moral category which they introduced so that they could have a, a a third category an area in which they could work this unnatural category the Bible knows nothing about the Bible knows about the organic problems people have sickness illness injury uh, bad health, but uh, the Bi- and the Bible knows about spiritual problems which are morally related to God and one's neighbor, loving God and loving one's neighbor. The Bible knows nothing about this third category, this so-called mental illness category, where a non-organic bug of some sort gets in and creates a non-organic problem which has to be treat- treated uh, non-organically under a medical aegis, so there's nothing medical about telling you how to live with grandmother. And so uh, this was created and came in as an unnatural sort of thing, forcing its way between the two categories that we had always known and believed in. And many pastors were glad to have it so, because they were exhausted from the battle. They were in storefronts trying to make a comeback. They were uh, in bad shape, uh, materially and physically and As far as time goes and uh, everything else. And they were glad to have somebody else take over their work. And so they let it go. And the problem grew. And you today are faced with it. But all the while, there was an answer, a better answer, to the problems that people have that are not organic or not organically based. And that answer was buried. You see, the reason why there's no consensus in this field of counseling is because the one book that could have brought consensus was early on rejected and laughed at by these people. And so they said, we can bring love, joy, peace, self-control, all these desirable characteristics to people in another way. The Bible had said, this is the fruit of the Spirit. The Bible had said, God had said through his word, that I am the one who brings those qualities of life into a person's experience. And I bring it into their experience through faith in Jesus Christ as that individual now appropriates the word and as the Spirit of God enables him to fulfill that word in daily living. I am the one who does that. But others were coming along saying... No, we can do that without the word, without the spirit, without God, without the church, without any of these things, by Freudianism, by Rogerianism, by behaviorism, Skinnerianism, by uh, something else. And so competitively, these organizations and these viewpoints set themselves up over against the church. And many Christians now realizing, Bible-believing questions, realizing that there was a need to help people in these areas, began to take training. But the trouble was that the training was training by these people who were opposed to God's way, who were in competition with God. Now, many of you may not realize that this is competition to God. I don't know what you call it. That's all I can call it. It's If I set up a store on one corner and I sell red rubber, I mean uh, black rubber tires that go on an automobile and three other people set up on the other three corners, shops that sell rubber tires, I call that competition. We're claiming that we can do the same thing. We're trying to get the same people for the same purpose. Well, here is God saying, I can give you love, joy, peace self-control, all these qualities through my spirit, by my word. Here are other people saying, no, we can bring happiness. We can bring love, joy, peace, all these things, self-control. We can bring all these qualities in life without the word in Australia. I don't know what you call it. I call it competition. They've set up over against God saying, we can do it. We can do just as good a job or better. Most of them say better. In a different way. And I don't know how you can integrate those two things. There's no way I know it. They can be integrated. As a matter of fact, if the Bible, the Old Testament, teaches us anything at all, it teaches us that God doesn't bless his competition. And so I don't believe that you can have it both ways. I think you're going to have to choose. But there it lay buried in the Word of God, the idea that there were answers, that God could bring these kinds of qualities of life to people and to their lives. And Christians went off to all kinds of pagans and studied with them and then tried to integrate these competitive viewpoints, brought them back as uh, Christian psychologists, Christian psychiatrists, Christian counselors back into the church. And what they did was to hold their Christianity, which they, in many cases, perhaps most cases, genuinely believed and were saved through, held that in one hand but held their therapeutic method in the other hand and the right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing. The two never were brought together. They didn't think presuppositionally. They didn't see contradictions. They didn't see any kind of a... uh, a com- competitive situation existing here. They said, on the one hand, I go to church and I'm a Christian here and I try to live that way in my community. On the other hand, this is my job and I will give them Freud and Rogers and all these people with a little prayer and a little Bible mixed in. And you see, they could see integration taking place very simply because these people had PhDs in psychiatry and psychology or MDs in psychiatry or whatever it may have been, but they had these kinds of backgrounds, but they only had a Sunday school degree in Bible. And then when you put a Sunday school degree together with a PhD or MD or something like that, which one is going to take over? Well, obviously the Bible is going to be bent to fit the other degree, and that's what's happening. And our seminaries, lazy as they are and always interested in accreditation, brought in these people, rather than theologically trained people and exegetically trained people who knew the word in depth, brought them in and brought them to teach ministers what counseling was all about. So what did they teach? They taught ministers, your gatekeepers. Ministers, you must learn how to refer and defer to the psychiatrists, the Christian psychiatrists now, who have hung up their shingles outside and who are in competition to the church. And so again, even in Bible-believing circles, the Bible was laid aside, and psychiatry now is inside the church, under the tent, its nose, its body, its hoofs, its tail. They're all under the tent inside the church today. But, long overdue, let me tell you that something else has been happening over the last 15 years or so. A new breed of ecclesiastical cat, I said, is now prowling about. This cat is somebody who says, No, we cannot turn to the pagans out there to find the answers that treat people's problems and determine what he has said must be do- done about them. And we must develop a methodology that is not barred from the pagans, but a methodology that fits both the presuppositions of what is wrong with the human being and the presuppositions that the Bible gives us of what must be done about what is wrong. A methodology that grows out of and is appropriate to those basic presuppositions at every point. And those ecclesiastical people are available more and more on the scene today. And they're the kind of persons who want to cooperate with Christian physicians. They long to cooperate with Christian physicians. On Monday of this week, this very week, I was talking to a group of pastors, men who are concerned about this kind of a matter. And One of them said in the Q&A period, How do you find a Christian physician who will work with you? How do you find some physician who won't, when you send him somebody for a medical workup, who won't send them off to a shrink, but will send them back to you so that you can work with them? And this question I get all the time from the other side of the fence. Here are people who are longing to work with you. They care about people. And they are more and more equipped to deal with those people. There are all sorts of training institutions in this country today, well over 30 institutions in this country alone that are turning out pastors regularly trained to do truly biblical counseling in a sophisticated way. There is a national organization. There are programs regularly of continuing education where pastors are learning who were trained the wrong way. There are video courses. There are audio courses. There are books galore. All in the last 15 years this has happened. And more and more of these people are available to Christian physicians if they will only look for them. And these people, on the other hand, will look for the Christian physicians to develop a significant alliance together together to work at people's problems. These are people who recognize what James 5 is all about. You know when it says in James 5, call for the elders of the church if you're sick, it goes on to talk about what they do when they get there. These elders don't just uh, pray, but it says, uh, let him call for the elders of the church, let him pray for him. Rubbing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the believing prayer will deliver the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. And if he is committed sins, he can be forgiven. That's a verb that I translated here. Rubbing him with oil is rather significant. Uh, The King James and some of the translations translate it anointing him with oil as though it were a ceremonial event. But the word, there are two words in the Bible, in the New Testament for, for anointing. Uh, one of them is the ceremonial anointing, Creo, from which the word Christos, or Christ, comes. And uh, you can see Creo Christos, it's the one with the, the, the key on the front like you have on Christmas, you know, this, this letter, that's not an X, that's a Greek C-H. And uh, that's the word for a ceremonial anointing. That's the word where it speaks of the Spirit of God coming upon people as a Christmast for example, in uh, 1 John. But that's not the word used here. This is a alepho, which is entirely separate. It's a word that, uh, for example, is used uh, by uh, Hippocrates to speak about how people were helped physically by doctors in that day. And the way in which they were helped was by mixing herbs and various medical potions with oil and with wine. And the person was rubbed with these medically. And that's exactly what this verse is talking about. This is talking about rubbing or smearing. It's not talking about ceremonial anointing at all. And it's saying that two things need to be done when a person is sick. He calls the elders, and of course there weren't doctors available on every street corner like they are today, but uh, so anybody that ministered medicine in those days. But what he's saying here is the elders were to pray, but also use the best medicine of their day. Pray and use medicine. And all these little exercises that people do carrying a bottle of oil around their pocket and make ceremonial anointings, that's totally out of the spirit of this passage. If the person, of course, is, there, is ill because of some sin that he's done, the sin will be forgiven, the prayer will, God will use, but he also uses medicine. And these people recognize that dual responsibility of dealing with people who have organic problems med- medically and also spiritually. And even the many people, of course, who don't have organic problems or organically based problems that may have an organic manifestation to them but not an organic etiology, these people also need to be dealt with this way. So here are men who want to work with physicians who are trained to do so or getting trained to do so and who use a biblical method. Now, when is it you might want to work with such men and refer some men to them who might take some people to them, some patients to them, who might take a great deal of your time and you still can't do the job adequately? Well, when medicine won't work or shouldn't be given, it's one time to think about that. A brief check by you of some of the attitudes of some of those people, their life problems, and so on, might indicate that the source of the difficulty is not something that you ought to be handling, but it is something that one of these kinds of people ought to be dealing with. To prescribe tranquilizers, as so often is done, I'm sure not by people here, to deal with marriage problems is the wrong solution and it's bad practice not the way to deal with marriage problems. Tranquilizers don't resolve marriage problems. They only make people incapable of dealing adequately with marriage problems because if they work, they take away initiative to deal with. Generally complaining or self-pitying persons are persons that you ought to think twice about. Do they need to go to somebody who could really face them up with their responsibilities before God and their neighbor in life? Depressed and suicidal persons need to be dealt with by somebody who's going to take the time. Antidepressants are not the answer to depression, but getting one's life squared away so that he or she, and more frequently she, as you realize, uh, or women and preachers are the ones who get depressed, as statistics show, more than anybody else, because they're the ones who have to assume their own responsibilities and see that they fulfill them. They don't have some boss saying, get it done by 4 o'clock or you're fired. Well, these people need help in disciplining their lives and not following their feelings, but following their responsibilities before God and their neighbor. And, for example, at our counseling training center, We have five of them now, but the ones that we've been operating for 17 and a half years or so, uh, these centers, we have hundreds of depressed people come in, and we get them dealt with quickly, and it lasts. Like in uh, four to six weeks, we have these people functioning uh, not only out of the depression in a week or two, but functioning as they ought to be functioning, and they stay in that condition rather than falling back to it again concerned homosexuals and lesbians. Uh, there are no, no pills you've got to deal with those problems, and, uh, uh, but there are people who can deal with them. And the scriptures say in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, such were, speaking of some of those Corinthians, some of you, but you no longer are. The rest of the passage goes on to say in other words. And there are ways of dealing with those people, but that takes some time, and it takes a biblical approach to do that and, the person often has to be convinced because he's fought a lot of propaganda that he was genetically uh, built that way or something else. Persons acting in bizarre manners who are not on drugs uh, and, and who show no other indications of an organic difficulty might need some help, too, from these kinds of pastors. Bitter, resentful people, fearful, anxious, worried persons. Some of your ulcer patients may also need some counseling, not just medical treatment. How do they get that way, and are they going to continue that kind of a lifestyle? Some of your colitis patients may need that kind of help. How do they get that way, and is their lifestyle involved in it? Persons concerned about death and dying or the meaning of life Sure, you can give them some initial ideas in the few minutes you have with them when you're trying to do something with them medically, but, hey, look, they need a a much deeper treatment than that. They need somebody to sit down and go through many of the aspects of their lifestyles and their thinking. They need somebody who can take that time. Persons troubled about their families, about their marriage, their children, divorces, (coughs) you can often be the one who can encourage them to get the right kind of help. Persons who are going through tragedies and stress, you can't be the support they need and the encouragement uh, adequately for them during this period of time, though you may see it and you may want to do it, and though you may pray for them and though you may give them a word or two, uh, when you have so much else to do. Or your own family will soon be going through some kind of a tragedy or a stress because of the time you spend away. And this is a problem with many Christian physicians, I find, that their own families are neglected because they care very much about their, their patients and they want to spend more time with them than they really can or should. And they don't do the job at home and they don't do the job at work and nothing gets done properly. They spread themselves too thin. I find physicians sometimes wanting to get into the ministry because they want to do the job more adequately. Well, some of those men ought to belong there. Others don't belong there. But wherever you are is where you ought to be doing the job properly, where you are. In general, I'd say that to anyone who needs to deal with values, attitudes, or behavior change is somebody who needs to be referred to a biblical counsel. And I believe that Today, more and more, you're going to find those people available in your community. It may not be directly in your community. It may be three communities over, but it's worth the trip. It's worth the trip. We have people come down, for example, from Los Angeles to San Diego because it's worth the trip. It's a two-and-a-half-hour trip for many of them, but it's worth the trip. We have people who come from uh, various parts of uh, of uh, Pennsylvania or uh, somewhere over in uh, West Virginia or Virginia who come up to Pennsylvania to Philadelphia, which is on one edge of Pennsylvania, obviously, and uh, it's worth the six-hour trip sometimes that they take getting up there. Because to find the right person who knows how to deal with your problems in the right way is going to solve an awful lot of difficulty in your life, both Spiritually and the organic implications that grow out of that spiritual problem. So I'm suggesting today that these people are out there, available and ready more and more on the scene. Not too many in Utah, not too many in Idaho, uh, more and more coming around the South, where most of you are from, through the East pretty f- freely, not too bad in the Midwest. Still sparse in Texas, not so good in parts of the uh, far west except now beginning to be more and more available in the area of, of California and uh, Washington State, but coming more and more available. And there's a network of these people in a nor- national organization called the National Association of New Counselors. The word New is just simply a Greek word from the New Testament that means to counsel people. It means uh, to counsel in the three elements in it, so that's why the word's brought over, because there's no English word that really approximates it. Three elements in that word are change, that is affected by confrontation, or personal, uh, individual counseling, out of concern for the person. The word often has a familial context about it, where a warm context where there's deep concern exhibited for the individual involved. So what I'm saying today is, Find those people, and if you have problems finding them, let me know. You can get my address from Ed, or Ed himself can let you know where a lot of those kinds of people are. They are available probably within striking distance of where most of you are. Now, what else can be done in this topic? I've been given uh, uh, an hour to talk about the physician, the pastor, psychotherapy, and counseling. That's a really... Neat topic, it covers everything in the world. But uh, what else can be done? Just one other thought before I quit. The Bible doesn't deal so directly with medicine as it does with lifestyle. Medicine is mentioned, it's commended. The physician is not looked down upon in the Bible only so often as he gets in the way of something else. If, if a physician is trusted in, Instead of God, or if a physician is is involved in some kind of incantation or something that's pagan, instead of going God's way, he is looked down upon in the scriptures, of course. But the Bible doesn't deal so directly with medicine as it does with lifestyle, but it does have some direct data on medicine. Those, by every physician, ought to be known, those data. And many physicians aren't aware of what the Bible has to say about medicine. For example, the little passage that I looked at today may have not been terribly uh, well-focused in some of your minds. Well, there are other passages in Proverbs and elsewhere that have some direct bearing upon the question of medicine that you ought to know about well. And probably if you were closer to some theologians concerned about this matter, they could help you to get some of those data uh, up onto the table where you could work with them a little bit more fully. But the Bible also definitely does give us principles and presuppositions related to ethics in medicine. And this, of course, is the topic of all this, but uh, I wasn't given an ethics topic, so I'm just sort of bunging this in at the end. Uh <clears throat> to keep in in the spirit of things here a little bit. If you want to find presuppositions and principles for ethics in anything, you've got to go to the Scriptures. You've got to go to the Scriptures, because uh, if you look at the ethical textbooks that exist in the world and the kind of thing that uh, we were just hearing about here from Doug earlier, you begin to see the total confusion about ethics. Does each individual decide what he's going to do? Are there norms? Is there natural, some kind of natural uh, theology that, or natural uh, reason or something of that sort in society where we all have certain things we all agree upon? The, the confusion is, is horrendous out there in the field of ethics. And until you come to realize that God is the one who sets the norms, and God is the one who gives us the principles and the practices, and God in his word is the one who's going to tell us what a human being ought to look like, until you come to that place, you're stuck. But you know, an awful lot of physicians don't have a good, heavy biblical training in their background. And that's understandable. You, too, maybe have but a Sunday school degree. So you need to get together with some, some people who have that kind of training. If you want to make ethical decisions that are, are biblical and that are pleasing to God, you've got to know those principles. And it means that you need to be sitting down with theologians and you need to be talking to them about passages and you need to be sitting down with exegetes who will, who will answer your questions about a given passage as to what that passage really means rather than the way the Sunday school teachers have been using. For example, just take this little passage of Proverbs that says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. How often have I heard in a Sunday school class or elsewhere or read in books or heard people say, now, there's an important philosophical principle for us to follow in life. As you think in your heart, so are you. Well, it doesn't say anything of that sort. It's one of the few passages in the book of Proverbs that has a little bit of context to it after, the ch- after chapter 10. And it's talking about going to eat with a man who ha- serves a meal to you, and he's, he's got more pork chops uh, on the plate than you can eat uh, if you're only allotted one at a time. And uh, it, so he says to you, would you like a second one? But the whole time he's thinking in his mind, I hope he doesn't take it, that pig, because I want that for supper tomorrow night. I want that pork chop myself. And uh, what he's thinking in his heart is is what's what's really, uh, you need to take into consideration is what the passage says, not what he says from his lips. So, you know, just let that uh, take care of you next time you're eating at a meal. But it has nothing to do... Uh, well, it's philosophy of life because it isn't teaching that. It's the philosophy of eating. That's what it is. But uh, it's also necessary, therefore, for, the theolog- for theologians and Christian physicians to work together to determine what the biblical data are and how they apply to the medical data. On the one side, you've got people who can produce something... Uh, in the way of medical data or organic data, their analysis of the body or the problem or the situation. On the other hand, you've got somebody who, who can produce exegetical data. And we need to bring those together. Too often we have people with, with uh, organic data who don't know the biblical side well enough or people who have the biblical side who don't know the organic side well enough. And what we need is a fruitful union at that point if we want to get, really get some ethics moving here. That will help both the pastor and will help also the physician. And, and that's why I'd like to see real opportunities over the years to come for physicians and, uh, who are solid Christian people and, and theologians and exegetes who are solid in their fields to meet together and iron out some of these things. We get too many of these books and and so on where either one or the other is trying to do the job and doesn't recognize the data in the other field. Uh, Casuistry will be the outcome. That's what you were talking about here earlier. Casuistry has a bad name, but it's a good thing. It only has a bad name because of the way it was carried on in the medieval days. But casuistry simply means the application of biblical principles to life situations, just as Doug was telling us. And that's what we've got to get down to, to understand what the Scriptures really say, understand what the circumstances are, and put these together in a way that grows out of our biblical presuppositions, ways that grow out of our biblical presuppositions according to our biblical principles and practices. So I'm calling today for a fruitful relationship, a meaningful, significant relationship between theologians and physicians. And may God grant that the day will come when we'll see that. That's my hope and my prayer.